what's up everybody it is december 21st thursday december 21st and this is rafael garcia back with shawan humes for another edition of the mma ratings podcast episode number 68 we're getting up there slowly but surely and i would not be this far if it wasn't for my partner in crime shawan how you doing there sir oh i'm doing good all the thanks belongs to you you're you're the one who came with the show and keeps it going i just uh Throwing some analysis and some humor every, every once in a while. Oh, man, that's what we're here for, dude. Like, uh, I think we're doing a damn good job. And we got a hell of a bit to talk about. But before we do, you know, happy holidays and all that good stuff to you and yours. Any big plans for Christmas or thanks, um, Thanksgiving for Christmas or New Year's? Uh, just hanging with the family. That's about it. Hanging with the family. And uh, I got a couple fighters I'm working with. And then, of course, running the kids through their practices and stuff because we got – uh, summer trials for summer ball coming in January, so always busy. Question: Do your girls know that Santa Claus is not true, or he's not real? Uh, everybody real? except for the five-year-old. The five-year-old still thinks Santa's a real person. Really? Oh man. So how how are you going to break the news to her? Uh, I'm just probably going to leave that to her mom. <laughs> <laughs> All right, man. So let's go I'm ahead and be shocked. I'll be like, wait a minute, Santa isn't real. I can't believe your mom told you that. Yeah, yeah, you definitely got to be shot. Like, she's a liar. Don't leave anything yeah. she ever says. From now on, we don't believe mom because yeah. obviously she's a liar. Don't believe anything she ever says. So let's go ahead and, and hop in to um, all the news that we have for this week and just kind of give you some um, other stuff to talk about. First and foremost, man, I don't want to spend too much time on this foolishness, but we got to talk about Floyd Mayweather and the, the, the UFC. I pray to God this is it for this conversation. I don't want to hear anything else about it after tonight. I don't want to hear us talk about it next year. I don't want to hear us talk about this joint at all. But Dana White said that he's talking to Floyd. Floyd basically squashed it a day later. Why is this conversation going on right now? Uh, same reason it always goes on, money. Nothing, nothing, nothing more, nothing less. Floyd is still the biggest combat sports star in in the world, in America, in the world. I mean, you just the numbers, the num- the numbers alone prove it. I mean, he was in a total farce of a boxing match, and he still o- almost broke the record for pay-per-view sales. And the only person who holds the record for pay-per-view sales is, in fact, Floyd Mayweather. So that's that's, that's all it is. It's, it's it's clicks. It's attention on ESPN. It's money. That same reason for anything funny because the Mayweather Conor McGregor fight is now in second place. I think they got 4.3 to the 4.6 that Oscar and he got back in 2008. That was 2009. Yeah, I mean it, it was it is second, but I mean once again Floyd is essentially just competing with himself when it comes to um, who who's the biggest star, who who sells the most pay-per-views. That's that's a that's the advantage he has over everybody right now. And even though he's been retired and he came out of retirement briefly, but he was still the big talking point in boxing and mixed martial arts. They talk about Floyd Mayweather more than they talk about any fighter in mixed martial arts and any boxer who's currently fighting right now. That is very true there. What does this fight mean for the current status of the UFC and MMA as a whole? Um, I was just disgusted. I'm not disgusted. That may be the wrong word to use. But there's so many different other things that we should be focusing on in the sport right now rather than this bout. And to see that it came up so quickly is just like, it's like, what about everything else for the organization? What 
about you know what's going to happen at welterweight? What about what's going to happen at the lightweight division? Um, what are you going to do at 205? So that's basically a stagnant uh, weight class. What are you going to do at heavyweight? Francis Ngannou and Stipe Miocic. There's so many different other questions that we could have been talking about right now. But no, once again, we are conversing about Floyd Mayweather and this fascination, I guess, that the combat world has with him. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's essentially, it's not even because he's the best boxer, because clearly at this point he's not. Um, it's just because of that star power. I mean, when it comes down to it, part of the large segment of the UFC's uh, problems are as a result of money. I mean, you know that. They make the super fights, the money fights, Ronda Rousey, Conor McGregor, all that is what the UFC has done to generate money. They've been trying to generate money. Now they have people to generate money, and they're looking looking for another person who can generate money. The bad part, the way that ma- makes the UFC look bad is because, like you said, you got a heavyweight fight on the horizon. You still have a possibly DJ and and TJ Dillashaw coming up. You have Cyborg versus Holly Holm. And the biggest event or the, or the most mo- news focus is only put on the UFC when you attach Floyd Mayweather's name to it. In fact, in the past year and a half, the, the UFC's biggest stories have been somehow connected to Floyd Mayweather. Now it's Floyd fighting in the UFC before it was Connor going over to boxing. So it's really a bad look that your your sport is essentially ruled by someone who's never competed in it and isn't an active participant, not a promotional partner. He's just a boxer, straight up and down, and he's the guy who generates the most interest in your sport. Does that mean that MMA is in a bad space or that the UFC is in a bad space right now? Well, to be honest, and I've said this before, as much as I like MMA, as much as I like boxing, the fact of the matter is both of them are just niche are niche sports. They're not like football. They're not like basketball. They don't have as much crossover appeal. They're basically, they basically appeal to a certain segment of the country, and that's it. I mean, their scale. You look at the money they make. You look at the money the fighters make. It's clear that the UFC and mixed martial arts as a whole isn't as big a moneymaker, isn't as big as an industry as pro football, pro hockey, basketball, major league baseball. It's just not. And right now, all that's happening is it's being exposed for being a sport with a limited fan base and limited interest. I mean, this is just exposing it. You wouldn't have the biggest story in the NFL be LeBron James' winning streak. The biggest story in the NBA wouldn't be Tom Brady being a potential MVP. The fact that it's overshadowed so much by all the, the fact that it needs these jump starts and these gimmicks to get attention kind of tells you where they stand right now. Yeah, I'm not going to disagree with that, even though we see the big. Um, can you turn me down a little bit on your end? I can still hear myself. But even though we see the big, um, the big stories that come through MMA every now and then, uh, and, and the big um, events and, and like the high revenue grossing events, it as a whole, I can agree with you there that it's definitely not the uh, it's not the big mainstream sport from a financial standpoint because if that was the case, if they didn't I don't want to use the word need these type of, of stories, but if they didn't benefit so highly over what they normally do from these type of stories, then they wouldn't be so quick to embrace them. Dana White wouldn't be so quick to talk about, yeah, 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 we're definitely having talks or whatever and then get embarrassed a day later when Floyd's basically like, no, I'm not doing that shit. Yeah, oh, I mean, like, why would you even bring it up? I mean, it, but it, like, you, like we discussed before, it's all the attention, it's all the money that's generated by this guy and by his presence and because of the impact he's had on 
the culture and the culture of sports. He's made such an impression that everything he does is a big event. And like I said, it, it's, it's exposing the UFC's lack of stars. It's exposing their lack of power. I mean, think about it. You got them, they got the offer from Fox Sports. The offer wasn't what they wanted. Uh, ratings aren't spectacular. Fighters are complaining about pay. And the only way you can get any sort of positive attention or big rush of attention anymore is to say Floyd's considering fighting in the UFC when we all know that's never going to happen. And what's worse is all the fighters, and I don't blame them for it, but all the fighters who are champions or contenders are, you know, on their Twitter, on Instagram saying, I'll be the first guy to welcome him to the cage. Like, I, I don't want to say I understand the money aspect of it, but you're in a mixed martial artist. That's not even a real challenge to you. Why would you take this on? You know, it just, it kind of highlights where they are in the hierarchy of sports as far as popularity and money. I mean, nobody's begging LeBron James to play tight end for the Cleveland Browns, and nobody's asking Tom Brady to play point for the, I don't know, for who played backup point for Cleveland Cavaliers or for the, the Boston Celtics. It just wouldn't make any sense. It wouldn't get any, it wouldn't get any momentum. It wouldn't get any attention. It wouldn't be taken seriously. It wouldn't get any notice at all. But here you have this kind of farce of an act, and all of a sudden, ESPN's on it, Fox Sports are on it, we're on, everybody's on it, you know, and that's the, like I said, it's the most interesting UFC's brand in their athletes since the Conor McGregor fight. Everything else has been overshadowed by Floyd Mayweather and his popularity. Yeah, definitely everything has been overshadowed there. Um, so, I, like I said, I didn't want to spend too much time on this. Let's go ahead and kind of move on from there. And let's look back to UFC on Fox 26, where I don't remember who you picked, to be honest. But what we saw was Rafael Dos Anjos basically dominate um, Robbie Lawler over 25 minutes and win a unanimous decision where he basically got Noah's 50-45 on, I think, two scorecards, 49-46 on the other. Uh, What did you see in this fight that made it so one-sided for the Brazilian? Juan? Okay, he must be on mute or something like that. So, yeah, anyway, I'll answer the question for him then until he comes back. But... It was very interesting. I think some of the bigger things that I saw was that, first and foremost, that uh, Dosanio stayed very active in this fight. Um, he stayed very active from the start to the finish, and I I was pretty surprised even when even when Lawler was giving him pressure back and landing a lot of combinations. Then he landed his jab throughout this fight at a very high clip and Desanos didn't wait or didn't he didn't wilt at all he wasn't he wasn't getting pushed back at all he kept the pressure on Lawler in a way that just made him almost seem out of sorts it made him seem out of sorts in a way that I don't think we've seen Lawler since he's come back to the uh, UFC even Robbie um or even Rory McDonald didn't look like, like that yeah I got you now all right go ahead so let's go. Let's um, talk to me about Dos Anjos versus uh, Lawler. What did you see there? Well, uh, as I as I mentioned a couple weeks ago, I did the article. Uh, it was a do and, do's and don'ts edition of for Robbie Lawler, Lawler for the fight he had with RDA, and a lot of people were really impressed by RDA. They were saying how he looked amazing. He looked so well rounded. 
He looks so well conditioned. And honestly, he, he looked pretty much the same as I've always seen him. There were some improvements. His boxing was a little bit better. Uh, um, he was a little bit more patient in how he applied pressure. He wasn't just all out pressure and volume. But in a lot of ways, the things he did showed a well-rounded skill set, attacks with his hands, attacks with his legs, attacks in the clinch, work takedowns. When he, is, when he got his opponent against the cage, he opened up with strikes at, in boxing range, at distance, and in the clinch. And he won a decision, essentially outworking his opponent, beating him up, walking him down, and overwhelming him with physicality. Now, I can't say I was really shocked by this because in my article, I gave a list of things for Robbie Lawler had to do to win the fight. I gave a list of things that he had to do to he had to avoid to, to keep from losing the fight. He didn't follow any one of the things I had listed, and as a result, he was essentially uh, beaten up and outclassed over five rounds. And he slipped a lot. He's fallen off. He's not a top guy, and maybe he's not an elite guy anymore. But the fact of the matter is, all the things that Dos Anjos took advantage of, it, it's stuff that he's historically had flaws in it's historic strategic and technical holes in his game that he's had since ufc 40. this isn't brand new stuff it might be new that desanyas took advantage of it in such a technical and pre precise and measured manner but every single one of the things he took advantage of have been problems for robbie lawler throughout his career for the entirety of his career so people are like really impressed by someone exploiting a hole that somebody's had for almost 14 years I'm not impressed by that. I'm impressed by the fact that there's people who don't attack those flaws in his game, even though they've existed for 14 years straight, never, had never really been addressed. So I want to go down two different paths. I want to talk about Lawler and what you do next with him. And I definitely want to talk about RDA first. Are you surprised by how good he's been since moving up to 170? He's put together three straight wins. I think he should be the top contender for the title next and he continued to he continues to look better every time he steps into the uh, cage if you're in charge you're the matchmaker back at the Bellator offices Viacom offices right now what oh, excuse me not Bellator the Zufa offices right now what do you do with uh, RDA do you take him down to Brazil give him Kobe Co uh, Kobe Covington and see what happens or do you put him in a title eliminator against um, Steven Thompson or, or an interim title fight? Do you get, find something else? Like, what do you do with this guy at this point in time? Um, first of all, I'm not too shocked about what he's done at welterweight. My biggest issue was how he would handle the sides because a lot, of, a lot of his style was based on overwhelming physicality. The first two fights didn't expose anything because Neil Magny's not a really physical and intense and tough and punishing fighter. Neither is Tariq, Tariq Safadine. They're kind of guys who have some skills, but in Magny's case, he's not a top athlete. He's not a physical fighter. In Safadine's case, he's not an all-round and developed, technically developed fighter enough to really test Rafael in each range. Like, Rafael just could outskill him on top of being able to set a pace on him. Lawler um, is probably one of the better wins you'll have in welterweight, especially after Lawler looks very good against... Donald Cerrone. So even though he, he hasn't really beaten a lot of top welterweights, he has beaten two good welterweights and one guy who's still considered a top five welterweight. So I have to I have to I have to think that he's he's open for a title shot. I don't think he's gonna go for Covington. I don't think he wants to do that. I know Steven Thompson wants to fight him, but he's in the driver's seat. Steven Thompson's lost two fights 
it, to the champion. He's nowhere near a title fight right now. And there's nobody who's closer to a title fight than Rafael Dasanyas right now. So I don't see him risking that spot to, to prove something to the fans or prove something to the UFC brass. I think he's going to hold out for the next title fight. Not going to settle for anything less. So unless they give the next title fight to someone else, I, don't, I think he's just going to wait and um, fully expect to be challenging for the title sometime next year. Okay, so let's talk about that. Preliminary with Tyron Woodley, a guy who has stalled out a great striker in, in Stephen Thompson and a guy who halted a even better grappler in Damian Maya. Do you put him in there against um, RDA, who has basically said, that yes, I understand that he's defeated Damian Maya. I understand that he's defeated Stephen Thompson, but I am someone who he has to be concerned about in, in every area. Now, what are, what are your thoughts on that? Is RDA the type of person that can get Woodley into a drawn out fight? Yeah, it, it's a it's it's a risky fight for both people. It's risky for Woodley because a lot of Woodley's success. Woodley's not a very a broadly skilled fighter. He can kick a little bit. He can grapple a little bit. He wrestles. He doesn't really wrestle as much as he used to, but he wrestles a little bit. He can strike a little bit. What he does is he's more of a strategy and a scheme guy than a guy who uses a bunch of techniques or uses volume or uses his, his, his athleticism. He uses athleticism, but he uses it intelligently. What he does is he figures out what you like to do, and he creates a barrier or a, deter or a deterrent that keeps you from doing it. When he fought Stephen Thompson, Thompson likes to set a high pace. Thompson likes to control the distance. He likes to overwhelm guys with volume and then finish with a, you know some spectacular esoteric technique. What he did with him is he countered him heavily and used his power and his explosiveness as a deterrent. Stephen Thompson didn't want to open up because he understood that Woodley could explode and take him down and do punish and pound him and put punishment on him, or Woodley could explode with a counter catch him clean, and if not, knock him, out, knock him out, put him in a spot where he could be close to being finished or finished. So as a result of that respect for Woodley's power and his ability to close distance, Thompson was just picking and pecking at him, a lot of feints, a lot of circling. He would never commit to anything because he was fearful of that counter. In the instance of Damian Maya, Maya was willing to push a pace on him, but since Maya is not a knockout striker, and Maya's not even a, he's not a, high cardio kind of guy like he can't maintain a hard pace for five rounds he can't maintain a hard pace for three rounds he just at this stage of the game he can't Willie just sat back let him shoot 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 slowly warm down and then took over the fights with big counters and and by draining him in those standing in those clinch exchanges when they would be tying up at after he sprawled him out he just warmed down and eventually the Maya's volume went down and Willie's counters got a little, little bit more frequent, a little bit closer to putting him away, a little, little bit more damaging. The problem he has with Rafael Desanos is much like Thompson, Rafael likes to throw volume. But the fact of the matter is Rafael's a very physical fighter and he's not afraid of contact. He's not afraid of getting knocked out. He's willing to risk getting knocked out or risk, willing to risk getting hurt to get his offense off, to assert himself offensively, to push Tyron Woodley back. Woodley's not going to be able to scare him off. And if he can't scare him off, then that means he's going to have to be more defensively active and he's going to have to be more offensively active. Otherwise, he's just going to get outworked over the over the uh, five-round time limit against somebody like Dos Anjos. And while Dos Anjos isn't as good a grappler as Damian Maya, 
once again, he can set a higher pace, he can maintain a higher pace, and he's actually a good enough athlete and physically strong enough that Tyron Woodley can't just shuck him off for round after round after round. If, in my opinion, if RDA gets him to the fence and can chain together takedown attempts, eventually he's going to get Tyron Woodley down. And I don't, I don't know that Tyron Woodley wants to have Rafael Desanos on top of him looking for submissions or dropping strikes down on him. And the biggest difference is the athleticism, the physicality, and the, and the aggression. When you're not going to be deterred, when someone can't back you off of them, they have to work at a pace higher than they're used to, used to working at. Think about what happened to Jose Aldo. He couldn't scare Max Holloway off. What happened? He looked good for two rounds, completely fell apart, and Holloway just exploded and put him away. Two fights in a row. Woodley's able to space out his energy and pick his spots because guys are so fearful of his explosiveness, so fearful of that power. So he can pick and choose what he wants to do. He can be defensive and sit back, let you wear yourself out, then start countering aggressively. He can come out, use some fakes and feints, explode with big shots and put you out like he did to Robbie Lawler. Or he can sit back, instead of being pushed back to the cage, bait guys by backing up to the cage. And when they come straight in on him, land, land huge counters, get huge takedowns, score points, do damage. Against Rafael DeSantis, that's going to be very hard because he will not be able to scare him off. He's, he might be able to knock him out, but he will not be able to scare him off. And even if he's strong enough to take him down or push him up against the fence, Rafael DeSantis is going to keep on working, working the attacks, working the counters, trying to improve position. There won't be a clear area where Tyron Woodley can rest. And without that rest, without that ability to scare somebody off, I don't know that he can, he can make it through five rounds without getting seriously hurt or finished by Rafael Desanos. I think it's stylistically it's a bad matchup. The question comes, can he handle Tyron Woodley's power? Because even though Robbie Lawler hits hard, he's not at the peak of his abilities as far as his explosiveness and the sharpness of his punches. Woodley's still very close to the peak of his abilities. And if he hits him clean, Rafael could be in serious trouble. That's a big if once again. So you said quite a bit there. And I definitely agree with you on that, because especially with you pointing out that RDA isn't the type of person to stop in any position. I think that we saw that against Lawler, even though he never like slowed at any point in time in this bout here. He kept the pressure on uh, Lawler from straight to finish, start to finish, even when Lawler was landing. He was landing some counter shots very good, especially his jab was popping uh, Dosanos in the face quite a bit there. But RDA never stopped. And I think that that type of pressure uh, really hinders Woodley because like, we look at how Roy McDonald fought him and Jake Shields. They stayed in his face through and through from start to finish and they didn't allow him to pick his shots and pick his moments. I think that's really uh, a good point there because I feel like RDA would fight him in the uh, same style. Yes, he does uh, lend a threat to the big punch and we've seen RDA go down to those before, but I don't think that I feel like he would be able to move just enough and his boxing's improved enough that he would be able to keep that off of him for enough time before so he can kind of rack up points I guess Woodley to get the uh, decision victory there's just one more thing because Woodley likes to conserve energy for some reason he doesn't ever fight at a real high pace as you notice in those last three or four fights he fights to neutralize you and that's one of the mistakes that Robbie Lawler had. In my article, I said Robbie Lawler needs to, A, counter aggressively. Another thing I said is for him not to start slow. Because when you have a guy like RDA, I mean, punching power is punching power. But as you know, and 
fighters you've worked you've worked with when you start getting momentum when you start feeling really confident and you get your feet underneath you start feeling that confidence like i can handle this kidder you you take the power better because mentally you feel like you're unstoppable so lawler let Hardier get going he let him get started he let him start with his volume with his kicks he let him put pressure on him immediately he did he didn't come out robbie didn't come out fast like he did against donald cerrone robbie didn't counter him aggressively the minute RDA threw out a jab, a kick. He should have been countering and countering heavily. This relates to Tyron Woodley because Tyron Woodley does not like to fight at a pace. He likes to explode in spot. So it's like you said, if this guy's applying steady pressure and Tyron Woodley's waiting for big moments to explode, he might find those big moments. But now that RDA's defense is a little bit better and now that his hands are a little bit cleaner, the question is, can, can Tyron Woodley up that work rate? Can he, he, can he fight a hard five rounds because if he can't and he starts out slow or he's trying to conserve his energy or he's trying to pick his spots he's going to let that momentum build he's going to be taking damage and then by the time he's landing those shots those big shots or he's getting them up against cage or god forbid he takes them down he's not going to be able to hold them it's going to be too much damage he's going to be already working at a pace that he's unfamiliar with and he's going to already have given given away rounds and and have rda fully confident fully sure that he's going to win this fight and essentially imposing his will on him. You, you can't let a guy like that get going. You can't even let him get started. And Woodley's just not the type of guy to come right out and get into a heavy exchange or do something explosive right away because for some reason he seems fearful that he's going to tire or slow. So he fights in a manner that, that reflects that. It's very careful. It's very measured. It's very patient. It's very built on taking away what you want to do instead of imposing what he wants to do on you. Yeah, I'm definitely going to agree with you on that for sure. Um, so let's talk about Lawler then. What do you do with him next? Uh, where do you see him going in the division? And is he really as done as far ready to say? It's hard. To, I mean, he's still top in the division. He only lost to the guy who was, at the time, Hafio was still top 10. So he lost to a top 10 guy. Um, it's not like he lost to somebody who's a scrub. He's still a name. I think after this loss, he's gonna he'd have to win some very, very tough fights to be put in the um, in, as a legitimate contender. And a lot of the guys who who are on their way up, the the younger guys might be willing to fight him. But the established guys like a like a Stephen Thompson, he's he's not gonna want to do it. He can't fight RDA. He just lost him. He's not gonna get a shot at Woodley. So he's gonna be a name, and he's gonna have to beat somebody like Darren Till, um, Usman somebody of that nature to put himself back in the contend- top contendership. I, I think he's still, got the sk- he's still got the skills. He's still got the veteran savvy. If he didn't, he wouldn't have made it five rounds. You saw he had the defense. He was rolling, picking off shots. He, uh, he was doing some of the right things. He established his jab to back RDA off and take away some of those kicks. He started countering heavily so that RDA would be on the back foot and able to re- really put power into those kicks. He started checking them in the second round. He was doing some really cool clever things. He was doing some very veteran, well-rehearsed uh, things that he had set up. The problem was he couldn't pull the trigger. And if he can't pull the trigger in a division with all these young, athletic, very big, very strong guys, he's good enough where he can survive. He's good enough where he can survive long enough to get to that fifth round where Robbie Lawler turns into the Incredible Hulk. But at the same instance, if he's slowing down and he still has these holes that he has not addressed in his game, namely slow starts, giving rounds away and not checking kicks, you can name four, five, six guys in division who can exploit that. There's, there's guys who are 
just as big as them, just as strong, if not better athletes who can exploit these things. And that's why I don't, while I still think right now he's still elite, he's clearly on the decline because he can't pull the trigger. He sees all the holes, he recognizes the techniques, he knows what to do, but he's doing it just a split second, half second late, or he's doing it a half second early and not getting the maximum effect out of the counter or the lead he's trying to use. And that's, that's the difference right now. It's a, it's a game of inches, it's a game of seconds and milliseconds, and right now he's a millisecond too slow, he's a half inch off, and, and it's gonna cost them against the better athletes and the uh, more elite fighters they have in the division. So, who do you pit him up against next? Do you make him fight somebody like a Darren Till? Do you make him fight a um, Santiago Ponzinibbio? Where do you put him next? And or I, I kind of think he's just just take some time off, take some time off, and come back to twenty eighteen. Yeah, he should Strong probably take some time hard. off. But the next fight, I would think you could have him against uh, maybe Alan Joe Boyne. You could put him against Mike Perry, who came, who's coming off of a loss himself. Ponzinibbio is not going to take him because it doesn't get him closer to the title at this stage. Um, Stephen Thompson doesn't want him because it doesn't get him closer to the title. Everybody he's gonna who's gonna want to fight him is gonna be a young is going to be a young, up-and-coming welterweight who needs his name on their resume. So he, he's going to be like Cowboy, facing some guy who, who doesn't, who's not going to bring a big payday, who doesn't have a big name, but is going to use him to propel, to propel himself to the next level of stardom, the same way Darren Till used uh, Donald Cerrone to propel him to the next stage. Good breakdown there, good breakdown. Um... Who do you pair next with RDA? Do you think he is the number one contender? I was saying, you know, you put him in there with um, Kobe Covington. That's that's my thought. But where where, where would you put him? I, I would probably say his resume is a little bit better than, than Covington's. Plus, he's a former champion, and he was already in talks before. I mean, if the UFC makes him fight Covington, I guess they could make him. I don't think he's gonna. I don't think he wants to fight Covington. I don't think he needs to fight Covington. He feels he needs to fight Covington. I think to him, the best fight available is for the belt, and I don't think he's going to take anything else. I guess the UFC says, get somebody else a title fight, then yeah, but I, I can't imagine fighting Covington. I don't, I don't really see the point at this, this stage. I mean, Covington hasn't really beaten anybody higher ranked than Robbie Lawler, and in his last fight, Covington didn't look spectacular. I mean, he, he, he beat up Maya worse than he beat up than Tyron Woodley, but Tyron Woodley didn't get outboxed by a basically a world-class grappler for a round and a half either so i don't think i don't think rda wants him i think rda is going to either go straight for the title and i guess if they somehow made the fight with covington versus woodley then the only other option would be for him to fight somebody like stephen thompson that'd be the second that'd be the other only other fight that i think would make sense okay all right good there good so let's um Continue working our way through UFC on Fox 26, which I thought was a pretty strong car. We have Glover, uh, Teixeira, and Misha, Misha uh, Chukonov, where Glover was getting pieced up at first, man. He was losing this fight, and if that fight would have continued going in that direction, he would have taken the L. But he gets a kind of a desperate takedown, and he's able to tie... Uh, Sukarnoff up so much, take his back and basically pound him out to get the win. What did you make of this fight here? And then I want to talk about both of these guys as individuals as well. The fight was, I wrote an article recently, it was on Combat Press, it was called Dead Weight, and it's explaining why these old men keep dominating the uh, two biggest weight classes in mixed martial arts. Essentially, it comes down to the fact that you have a lot of young athletes with skills 
and a lot of young athletes with athleticism and durability, but they don't have any sort of seasoning. The level of talent outside the UFC and Bellator for, for light heavyweight is so thin that you can't really, you don't get put in really tough spots. You don't have guys who have a good balanced set of skills or who have a lot of depth of skills. You have a lot of guys who might have a lot of skills, but they're very shallow, or they might have one skill that's deep, but they don't have really two or three they can under pressure. So then when they face a guy who's in the UFC, like a veteran guy, like a Shogun or a Glover, those guys still are tough enough that they can take some abuse. They're still defensively sound enough. It doesn't look pretty, but they can roll with some shots, get their hands up, kind of backpedal, tie up, smother a guy, do whatever it takes long enough to survive and handle the power. And then they have the all-round skills, the wrestling, the ability to transition from punching rain to clinches, transition from take a take, attempt a takedown, chain takedowns together. Once they get somebody down, completely dominate. That's where that that's where that lack of seasoning gets gets these guys in trouble. Serkinov looked good. He's a big, strong, physical, active guy. Glover's shin isn't what it used to be. He's not as durable. He's his timing isn't as good on his offense or his defense. He's a little bit slower. He's not really explosive at all, but what he is is he's tough, he's very experienced, he's well-rounded, and he's very seasoned. So Serkinov got a little overexcited, thought the fight was over, he's dominating. Uh, he gave Glover an opening, Glover got him to the ground, and once he got him to the ground, the fight was over. That guy had no answers, he had no counter, he was on the defensive the whole time once the fight hit the mat. And the fight went from a, a damn near flawless victory for him on the feet to a one-sided beating on the ground, just like that. And it's just because they don't have enough skilled and experienced and durable and smart guys at these lower levels to really give these guys the seasoning they need for when they fight a guy who's got 10 times the experience that they have. And this isn't the first time Glover's done this. Glover did this to OSP. He did it to Jared Cannonier. essentially the same fight, getting beat up by a big, strong, young, light heavyweight. They overcommit, overpursue. He takes them down and then proceeds to beat the living out, living death out of them before finishing them. That that's three fights against athletic big guys that he's done that against. So, do you think that Glover can go on a run? Like, can he? Because he said some words to um, light heavyweight champion uh, Daniel Cormier over in the corner. Do we think that Glover can find his way back into the title picture? Uh, right now, the only person who would be ahead of him would be uh, Volkanov, who's going to fight for the title, and um, Gustafsson, because Gustafsson stops Glover. He, he, he knocked him out. Outside of that, who else would there be? He's already beaten OSP. Him and Shogun won't fight each other. He's already beat Jared Cannonier. He beat Jared Cannonier OSP. Um, I mean, Rashad Evans has come back. He's already beat him. I mean, there's not a lot of guys in the division who have put together enough wins or whose names have any sort of cachet where they could jump over him. I mean, another fight or two, and he could find himself squarely in the, in the title. He's already in the title mix. He could find himself in a title shot um, in, another fight, in another fight or two. He might not even have to take another fight, and he might find himself challenging for the next title. The division, the division so, is just, it's just so thin. And so all the thin. young guys coming up, they haven't done anything. Cannoneer hasn't done anything. Serkinov was on a win streak. He just got beat up and finished by Glover. So yeah. the only guys who were above him are, once again, other veterans. And Kennedy lost as well this weekend, too, didn't he? Huh? Say it again. And, and, yeah, and Jerry Kennedy lost as well. Yep. So, I mean, 
who, who else? The only person ahead of him will be Gustafsson. Maybe Shogun, but him and Shogun won't fight. So the only guy who is clearly ahead of him would be Alexander Gustafsson. So if he just puts himself on the sidelines, he in a year, year and a half, maybe he wins one, one more fight, he can find himself challenging for the belt. And since Gustafsson and Cormier already fought, the UFC might say we've already seen that. Let's 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 keep that in our back pocket. Glover, you take the next step up. Yeah, how do you think he would do against Daniel Cormier? Against a guy he can't take down? I don't really know. I, I can't imagine him beating him because Cormier is still faster. Cormier is much faster, much more explosive. Cormier's chin, from what I know right now, is still there. And he can't, he can't grapple him. He can't take him down. I don't believe he can take him down. Or I don't believe he can hold him down. I believe Cormier can take him down whenever he wants. And I believe on the feet that even though Glover is considered one of the better strikers in mixed martial art, the fact of the matter, he's really not that good. He's, he's, he's developed his skills. He's kind of rounded him out a little bit, but he's still essentially a one-handed fighter. He's not really good with kicks. He's not consistently busy with them. And even though, uh, even with his boxing, it's decent, but it's not great. His real strength, his real dominance is his ability to wrestle and his ability to grapple. His top control, his transition. His stand-up really isn't, isn't, isn't really great. I mean, when he fought Rampage years ago, he was taking Rampage down. You know, I mean, he, he's stand-up. He, defensively, he's not very sound. He can, he, he's going on offense. He's okay with counters, but he's fairly limited. Really, his ground game and his wrestling is what he, he's won his biggest fights with, and he can't depend on either one of those things against Daniel Cormier. Yeah, I, I mean, you know, I'm, I'm just not, I'm not the biggest fan of that division across the board, and I think that this situation kind of really plays into that. So with that in mind, I mean, let's go ahead and keep keep moving because we got a couple other things to talk about from this night of fights. Uh, Mike Perry and, and Santiago Ponzinibbio. Man, those two guys went at it. That was a hell of a fight. I enjoyed it from start to finish. It was funny because me and my team, as we were kind of working on it, we were like, how the hell do you tell these two guys apart? They look exactly the fuck alike. But it was a great fight. I really enjoyed what I saw. I'm not surprised that Ponzinibbio got the win there. Uh, it was it was close. I expected it to be very close to as well. So let's break down this fight here. And let's talk about what, what we would do next with both of these guys. Uh, well, Perry... I think I really think Perry should take a step back. All the fights he's been in, win or lose, have been really high contact, really physical fights where he's had to take as much as he's had to give. And he hasn't had an easy fight, a really easy fight, since he's been in the UFC. It's all been guys who are dangerous, guys who are athletic, guys who've had, had some kind of ranking and had some kind of level of skill. And he's, he's just taken a lot of abuse recently. And I'd rather see him maybe get an easy fight or maybe take some time off and refocus himself on developing his skill set even more because he's a real instinctually he's a really talented fighter like he's a guy who who's kind of succeeding regardless of the training he has because he's not in a really good camp he's not getting the greatest sparring in the world but he has natural in, natural fighting instincts like they say some people are born to play basketball they never play and they just instinctively understand it some people instinctively understand grappling some people instinctively understand boxing or football. He's a guy who has an instinctual understanding of fighting as far as the timing, the distance, the, the ebb and the flow of a fight. He just, he just takes to it very well. I mean, he's only been a pro. He's been a pro for a very short period of time, and he really hasn't had any pushover fights. He's really been pushed quite fast by the UFC, given the fact that he's been a pro for, what, three or four years, maybe five years? They've put him on a fast track, and for the most part, he's performed. 
But I really think that with a guy with his kind of appeal and his kind of style, you don't want to burn him out too early. And if you keep giving him top 10 guys, top 15 guys, because in welterweight, much like lightweight, is very deep, you're gonna, you risk burning him out or risk him getting knocked off and becoming damaged goods before he can really make all the uh, technical improvements or the strategic improvements that he's been making. He's been making them at a fast rate, but they've been moving him up at an even faster rate. So you might wanna, you might wanna look after your investment, maybe match him with a guy who's legitimately tough, but a guy who, who won't distribute a lot of punishment. They could take away some of that athleticism or do irreparable damage to him. You want a guy who's got that kind of charisma, that kind of style, and it looked that it says real life fighter. You want that guy to be around year two, year three, because I think in year two, year three, he's gonna be 10 times the fighter he is right now. But if you keep throwing him these fastballs, sooner or later, something's gonna happen and it's gonna take off the potential he had moving forward. So I, I really think they should give a step back, maybe give him an easier fight or give him somebody tough, but somebody who's not one of the, you know, hardest hitters or busiest strikers in division. Give him somebody who's got some skills, got some athleticism, but isn't a knockout type guy and isn't a brawling type guy and let him have a chance to work in some of the improvements he's had per, in his personal skill set, working against a guy who's not going to make him be punished dramatically for every mistake he makes in the cage. Um, so that's what I would do with him. I, I was really impressed. He showed he's, he's not just a brawler. He's a guy who brawls, but he's very smart. He picks his spaces. He's very sharp with his shots. Um, he's diversified his striking. He, he shows some controlled aggression in what he's doing. A lot of guys just think he's a big, dumb fighter who's got stupid tattoos and is just an offensive person, but he's a really smart and calculated fighter. He's just, right now, he's not developed enough to showcase the full extent of his mental abilities and his technical abilities. But if you give him some more time, and it may be at some point you give him a better camp, uh, I guarantee you could be looking at a guy who, who has the potential to be an all-time great. All-time great? Yeah. If you look at, if you look at the competition he's facing, um, shout out to my to friends of the show, Connor Rebush and Patrick Wyman, who had a discussion about this. And, you know, in researching it, you see that he's been moved very fast. Most guys who come in don't fight the caliber of opposition he's been fighting right off the bat. They don't do as well against the caliber of opposition that he's, he's done right off the bat. He's faced some tough guys, and he's won and won decisively. And even when he's lost, he hasn't lost by the same manner. You've seen improvements in his strategy. You've seen improvements in his self-control. You've seen improvements in his shot placement. You've seen improvements in his actual the, te the range of techniques he uses and the setups he uses to provide a line of defense and create the create counter opportunities. He's really improved. From, everybody says they improve from fight to fight, but I've really seen small and in some cases very big improvements every fight he's taken win or lose and you can't say that for the majority of fighters in any division so look at that division as a whole what do you really do with welterweight right now because this that division is crazy it's it's Welterweight and lightweight have kind of moved back into the position where they are the two stacked divisions out of the group. And I don't know if you saw the MMA beat this afternoon, but someone had a good idea about about Stephen Thompson saying, "Well, hey, you know, I've already lost. I've already gotten two ch shots at the at the champion. I'm probably not going to get a third. What if what if Thompson moved up to 185 and challenged Robert 
Whitaker. He, he already has a, a dominant win over the middleweight champion. Do you think that that's something that he could talk the UFC into doing? And what do you really do with the rest of that weight class? Well, I mean, you got a lot of good fights you can make. I mean, Darren Till's still out there. Ponzinibbio's on a win streak. I mean, you could have Ponzinibbio fight Stephen Thompson. You could have him fight Darren Till. The problem is once these guys get big wins, all they want, they want big names because the big name will either get you to a title fight or if you lose to a guy who's a big name, it won't knock you down all the way down the rankings. You know, like, like, and I, I'm not trying to sidetrack the conversation, but you saw the, uh, the Josh Emmett fight against Ricardo Lamas. Losing to a guy like, like uh, Josh Emmett is going to kick Lamas way down the rankings because that guy wasn't considered elite. That guy didn't have any big names on his resume. So loss of that guy hurts tremendously. You lose to a guy like Robbie Lawler, that's not too bad. Mike Perry loses to uh, Ponzinibbio, that's not really bad. Um, Cerrone losing to Darren Till, even though a lot of people picked Till, Till hadn't faced any big names. He hadn't faced any elite talent. That was his first step off. So a loss to Till kind of puts somebody like Cerrone way to the back of the line. Now, Cerrone's a big enough star where he's going to get multiple opportunities because he has a fan base. He has the UFC behind him. He's got a reputation as being, you know, the real fighter who draws in the fans and draws in the ratings. So he'll get multiple opportunities. But on average, a fighter who's just a good fighter, who's highly ranked, they lose to a guy who's a lesser ranked, and all it does is put you in the back of the line. So all these guys, Thompson, Ponzinibbio, Till, they all want names. They all want to fight the top guys. They all want to stay as close as they can. They want, they want to stay within striking range of the belt. So now it's going to get jammed up because nobody's going to want to fight each other. Stephen Thompson's already said, I don't, he, he's already said, Till needs to earn the right to fight me, you know, and he's nowhere near a title shot. Now, Rafael Desanio says he only wants a title shot. Colby Covington only wants Rafael Desanio, you know, so the, the cycle is going to continue and you're going to have guys jostling for position and refusing to fight the younger guys because they feel like they're a fight or two away from a title fight. Um, and, and like I said, Ponzinibbio has a good argument as well because he beat Gunnar Nelson in his last fight. Now he beat Mike Perry. So he's, he's got a fairly strong argument that he should be in the next title fight because he's actually beaten a better class of welterweight than Covington and Rafael Desanos overall, in my opinion. He's beat, he's beat the better competition. I mean, each guy has a name that's better on their resume right now. But as far as like multiple guys who are ranked and were quality fighters, I don't think you can compare what they've done to what... Um, Ponzinibbio has done in his last two fights. Uh, as far as Thompson moving up, I can't see him doing that. I, I think it takes time to move up in class because even though he's got the skills and the speed, I don't know if his power translates. And I, I don't know how he does facing those really big, really physical guys. And the last possible thing is his brother-in-law fights at that weight. So he's not going to want to be in any position where he could keep him from moving up in the rankings or possibly have to fight him to get a title shot. And he wouldn't get one immediately anyways. He's not a big enough of draw, and he hasn't done enough at welterweight to, to um, catapult him into a title fight or into a fight with a uh, top five middleweight right now. He'd have to work his way up, and I don't. I think he feels he's closer to a title at welterweight. Okay, okay. So let's keep uh, moving. Let's talk about a couple other things. Did anything else from UFC on Fox 26 stand out to you? I like the. I love the fact that the card was over before fucking midnight, and I was able to go out afterwards. But hey, whatever. Yeah, well, that was a nice change of pace. I think sometimes people who don't, who like you know, people who only cover mixed martial arts, they don't understand the commitment that watching a mixed martial arts event takes. I mean, there's no six-hour NBA game. There's no six-hour Super Bowl or NFL or any kind of game. 
maybe baseball, and that's not a common occurrence. It takes a certain kind of dedication to watch a mixed martial arts event from beginning to end, and a lot of people, a lot of people aren't into it like that unless it's um, a big superstar money type fight. And cards like this don't have that kind of thing. So being able to get the fights in and out and keep a good pacing actually would help the ratings. It would actually help the product. But for some reason, the UFC has not got that memo, and they are insistent on these marathon, these marathon events. And it's, it's, it's just ridiculous, to be honest. It, it, it actually hurts their earning potential, in my opinion. But, yeah, um, I can definitely uh, agree with you The there. biggest things I noticed, uh, um, it, actually, they're too connected. You had uh, Tim Elliott, who refused to take his fight, take weight, and a lot of people gave him a lot of flack. You know, you say you need the money, you should take the fight, you're supposed to be a warrior, and I've said it multiple times, these guys aren't warriors, and they shouldn't act like it. They're professional sport, they're professional athletes. It's a business and you need to treat it like such. And I'm glad for once someone's management and someone's team didn't say, well, just take this guy because you're going to get 20% of his pay. The guy was debuting in the UFC. 20% of his pay isn't all that much. The guy was not ranked. The guy was dropping down a weight class and the guy didn't make weight. What if Tim Millie loses? Tim Millie lost to Demetrius Johnson. He lost to Luis Smoka. Now he's going to have a loss to an unranked fighter making his debut, a possible loss to an unranked fighter who's making his debut in the UFC, where does that put him at, at, feather, at um, flyweight? What does that do to his potential chances of working back into the top five or staying in the top five and top ten or getting another title shot? It ruins him. So somebody, for once, had some good sense and said, yeah, it's not worth it financially. This isn't a guy who gets paid $100,000 a fight, so if I get 20% of his salary, it's a, it's a big add-on to mine. It's a guy who's gonna, who might make me an extra 15000 an extra 2000 that's not worth me possibly being on a two-fight losing streak or me possibly losing to an unranked guy. And even if I win, a, win and finish this guy, what does that do for me? He's not a top-ranked guy. So I'm expected to beat him, and I'm expected to do so in devastating fashion. If, he, if I struggle with him, it's a bad look for me. If I dominate him, it's not that big a deal. And if I lose to him, it's catastrophic for my career. And too many guys look at the short, in, the short money the short range issues and try to move forward. Will Brooks did it, it cost him his Cowboy Oliveira. And as we mentioned before, Ricardo Lamas did it against Josh Emmett and look what it did to him. He's all the way down the rankings and he's a guy who doesn't have any cachet. He's a guy who doesn't have a big fan base. All he has is the fact that he's an elite fighter who went, who, who gave Jose Aldo a tough fight and seems to beat everybody except the very best in division. But now he's a guy who lost to a person who wasn't even ranked in the top 15 in the division. You know, it's it's very, and he had a he had a massive knockout, so he can't take another fight for what, 90 days. So not only did he lose his ranking, he got knocked out, and he can't take another fight for at least 90 days, if not longer. So those two things really interested me because you saw both extremes. You saw a guy who did it, played it safe, did made the smart business move, a guy who, and a guy who gave the fans what they wanted, and ended up kind of being pushed back a couple of steps as a result. And I just think it's a reminder that people need to keep thinking, this is not a this is not some sport or some war. This is a business. And I need to treat it like a business because the UFC isn't doing you any favors. They're going to say, hey, we did you a favor by giving you 20% of his paycheck and letting you fight. But that doesn't fix your ranking. That doesn't fix the, the damage the knockout did. That doesn't fix the time you're going to be out where you can't even fight and make any money. All because you decided you'd do the UFC a favor or you'd... Uh, appease the fans by taking the fight. You didn't want to let them down. I mean, it's a noble thought, but 
you know, when you're dealing with your family's lifestyle, your income, and your well-being, you can't afford to t make those decisions carelessly. And I, I think Ricardo Lamas did. I think Tim Elliott didn't. And I think you're going to start seeing a lot more people follow the Tim Elliott model. Well, yeah, I mean, I don't disagree with him at all. You know, I'm not a fan of, of short notice fights either. And I think that athletes need to get to a position where they are more willing to stand up for themselves and say, you know what? No, enough is enough. I'm not taking this fight on short notice. So Short notice and didn't make weight. And didn't make weight, of course. Like, I mean, Ricardo Lamas may not recover from his decision to fight uh, Emmett last minute like that. He may not recover at all from a, from a pay standpoint and a performance standpoint. We may not see what what will happen to him. I mean, he's probably not ever going to get a title shot again. What, what if in his next couple of fights we just see him getting knocked out? You know, he gets knocked out by shots by guys who aren't big punchers and shots that don't look really damaging. What does that I mean? mean? We're going to have something to point old, back to. Did, yeah, or did Emmett push him over the edge? Was he a guy who had another four or five good fights in him and now he's essentially finished? All because he took a fight with a guy who was a better athlete, already bigger and stronger, and who didn't make weight so he could appease fans or appease the company. Because if you go on a losing streak or you stop performing, they don't keep you around. They don't They don't remember the favors. That's Frankie Edgar. They don't remember none of the favors he did for them. Yeah, and now they talk bad about it. So let's talk about, before we close out today, let's talk about... Um... What's his name? Michael McDonald making his Bellator debut and Valerie Letourneau's fight over there too as well. Let's talk about Michael McDonald first. He suffered yet another hand injury, but he earned a unanimous decision victory. What should be the expectations that fans have for him in the circle cage? Because me personally, with the way his UFC run kind of tapered off, I don't have such high expectations for him at this point in his career. But what about you? I don't know. I've heard some of his interviews. And he seems like a very smart guy. He seems like he's, he's figured out that, once again, this is a business. I fear that maybe he, he's figured out a little bit too late in the game because, you know, um, you know this, this recurring injury thing is going to be problematic. But uh, I still think he's... Yeah, he, and he's a, he's a big puncher. That's a lot of his, his game plan. But once again, he, he does have good wrestling skills. He does have a well above average um, uh, grappling skills. When you match him with his athleticism, he, he's actually probably one of the better grapplers in that division. I think you can still say that at some point he will probably challenge for a title. I mean, out of in the Bellator cage right now, who's faced a better better class of opponent than Michael McDonald? Who's beaten a better class of opponent than him? Uh, they, they don't really have anybody. The question is, will his body hold up, and will he be able to put enough wins together in a in succession in a in a period of time to vault him into a title fight? I don't think he should go the ben, Benson Henderson route and try to get a title shot right away. I think he should try to work his way into it and um, and see what happens because, the, like I said, with the, the Bellator divisions, they're not particularly deep. So even if you lose to a guy you shouldn't lose to, you know, you win another two or three, two fights, and you're right back in title title contention. It's not like the UFC where you lose a fight to somebody you shouldn't lose, and now you're six or seven fights away from a title shot. Bellator doesn't have that many stars. They don't have that many legitimately qualified fighters where they can keep throwing five, six, seven guys at you and you have to keep on winning to get that opportunity. They've got like, you know, maybe 10. You, you beat two or three, you're right back in that spot. So my hope for him is that he is recognizing that it, he, might, he, might be, he might be injury prone 
and start making adjustments to his style and start making adjustments to his skill set <clears throat> so that he's able to put the wins together and keep himself in contention. Because it's like any other sport. If you're not able to compete, you can't really get ahead no matter how talented you are. No matter how big the win you have is, you break your hand, you're out, for, for, you're out of fighting for how long? So you can't be the next title contender. I mean, he's a big name, but he's not that big a name where they're just going to hold a spot for him for six months. He's got to be able to find a way to get to these fights, to win them, win them in, 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 in effective and ho hopefully entertaining fashion in a way that keeps him able to compete three months from now, two months from now, or however long it is between he, he needs between camps. So do you think, um, do you think he could beat Darren Carwell? Uh, I think he's got the physical tools to beat him. I, I don't know right now because he's been so inactive. He's been he's been so inactive, and I, I don't know what kind of training he's been getting. I don't know in his um, grappling chops. I, I think he I think he has a chance of beating Caldwell. But right now, Caldwell's been fighting so often. Caldwell's making huge leaps and improved technically and strategically in every fight. I, I'd have to see Mayday. I'd, I'd want to see him, you know, win a good two or three fights in a row and beat before I could actually make a, a honest assessment about his chances. But just based off ability and experience, yeah, he, he'd, he'd, have, he'd have opportunities. There, there'd be ways he could beat um, Caldwell. I just don't think he's been active enough um, to do it right now. I wouldn't take that fight, my next fight or the fight after it, I'll tell you that much. Okay, okay. So what are your thoughts about Valerie Letourneau? She earned a big win as well um, over in... Bellator, so she's she's another former UFC title challenger, making her way to the second biggest promotion in, in the sport. What did you see from her? Well, it was kind of like I wrote. A, I addressed an article I wrote. I really think it's kind of a paint by the numbers win. Kate Jackson isn't a spectacular athlete. She's not a, a spectacularly accomplished fighter, not compared to someone like Laterno. So Laterno's work rate, her striking, her length, her physicality is what determined the pace of the fight. Jackson couldn't really counter effectively. She couldn't get her, she couldn't impose her will offensively, and, and she's not slick enough defensively to get away from Letourneau and create counter opportunities. And nor was she able to get away and beat her in to get reactive takedowns where she could maybe work some ground and pound or, or try to work for submissions. She just didn't have position. She didn't have the athleticism. She didn't have the physicality necessary to match up with Letourneau. Uh, my question, my concerns for Letourneau are similar to the ones that Mayday. Letourneau has repeatedly said that when she's in the UFC trying to make straw weight, she would put herself through some vicious cuts trying to make the weight. And my and even now that she's in the better weight class, flyweight, I've left because you know, as you know, as a fighter, if you're if you're cutting weight like that, you're you're doing severe damage to your body when you're fighting in a weight class you shouldn't be in. So the question is, in between all the wars she was in, because almost all her fights were very high-impact, punishing, bruising fights, and you consider the weight cuts and the damage it did to her body short-term and long-term, has it done any irreparable damage? Is her chin still there? We don't know. Kate Jackson isn't the kind of girl who's going to test your chin. Is her durability and conditioning still there? We don't know. Kate Jackson isn't the kind of person who's going to put you in a bad spot and, and out-hustle you for a round or two rounds or three rounds. She's just not the type of fighter. She's a good, solid, tough, fairly experienced fighter. She can't test the, the limits of Letourneau's durability or her physicality or her athleticism. 
She's just not that type of fighter. This was a big win because Letourneau was a big signing for the for Bellator, and it's a big win because Letourneau ended like a, I want to say a two or three fight losing streak, and she got a win in Bellator, and a lot of Bellator's big signing pieces have not gotten wins in their first fight. In fact, some of them have performed very poorly in their uh, Bellator uh, careers. So that that's what makes it a big win. And plus, since she's a name, they can start considering to have her fight McFarland. Once again, my issue is this. She needs to have time. She's been out for, what, close to a year, if not more. She was on a losing streak. Reacclimate to get herself as sharp as she can be to make sure everything's a go. So when she fights McFarland, she can make the most of her opportunity. I personally do not think if she fights McFarland anytime soon that she will get multiple shots at the title, unless it's a very, very close fight. I don't think she's going to get multiple shots because unlike the other divisions, their flyweight division is actually getting filled up really quick. They have a lot of fighters, a lot of good fighters who are fighting really often. So if she goes in in her next fight and fights McFarland and she loses, she's not getting another fight, another chance with McFarland. Uh, depending on how that fight goes in itself, she won't get another shot at the belt for two, three, maybe four fights. So if she goes in, she needs to make sure she's ready to give the best performance she can because she's not... She's not a needle mover. She's not a big ticket seller. And they're not just going to give her that, that opportunity off the strength of her name. She's going to have to put wins together and not to put multiple wins together at that. So I would really like to see her be a little bit more active. I'd like to see her make sure, get her timing down, get her sharpness down, work through some tough spots. Because McFarland is a very tough fighter. She has been very active, and she's essentially beaten every other top strawweight flyweight they have in the division. And her grappling, her grappling is just so otherworldly. Um, I, I, I don't know that right now that Letourneau is prepared for that. I know she's seen a lot. I know she's seen everything. She's done everything. But the fact of the matter is she's like on a two or three fight losing streak. And you just don't beat a girl like Jackson and think that you're ready to take that huge step forward. I think she needs to be more active. I think she needs, she needs to go through another camp. I think she needs to show that she can maintain her health. And then after another fight, maybe two, then then move her way into a title fight with McFarland, but um, I don't think she should rush into it. Not at this stage of her career. She's not gonna. She doesn't have another ten years in her career. She doesn't have another five or seven years in her career, in my opinion. So whatever opportunity she gets, she needs to make the most of them, and she needs to make sure she is completely prepared to do everything she can to win them or put on a good enough performance and a loss to force a rematch. Because I don't believe if she loses and, and loses in spectacular fashion, I don't believe she will get another title fight. I'm not going to disagree with you there at all, man. So, um, you almost realized that we didn't talk about UFC uh, 219, which is a hell of a big card on the 30th, next Saturday, not this Saturday coming, folks. And we have uh, a lot of big fights here, man. I kind of I don't want to dive too deep into this right now. Um, we'll probably talk about it in, in a recap show early next year. But what are some of your early thoughts about this card? We got Christine Justino and Holly Holm in, in the main event. It's an opportunity for home to make history being the first woman to hold two titles being the first woman to be uh or excuse me the second woman to be christine uh justino stopping her epic run in her career what are your thoughts about this main event uh it probably is going to be the most the biggest and most important women's fight in the history of mixed martial arts um because like you said holly will be making her second attempt at, at the flyweight was it no featherweight title so she'd be the first to win two belts and uh um, for Christina Cyborg, she's a two. She's a two organ. She's actually a three, three organization champion. She's been featherweight champion, Strikeforce, Invicta, and the UFC. 
and this is the first time she's facing an opponent who people feel like is on her level athletically, who's on her level as far as experience, who's on her level as far as accomplishments in mixed martial arts and outside of mixed martial arts. Home, and it essentially legitimizes her career. Everybody knows her as the Mike Tyson of mixed martial arts, but nobody's ever really seen her tested. Nobody's ever seen her with, with somebody who's comparable to her, somebody who she can't. So she fights and beats Holly, it establishes her whole career, and Holly's going to beat Ronda Rousey, so MMA math-wise, that puts her, that takes her from, from just a big MMA star and breaks her out into a crossover star. But Holly Holm is the same thing. She's been on a, she was on a losing streak, she beat Beth Cohea, but if she beat Cyborg, that means, if she already beat Ronda, that means she beat the two most dominant forces in women's MMA in two different divisions. If she never has another win for the history of her life, even bigger of a crossover star, and she'll be a former a two-division champion in mixed martial arts and an 18-time world champion in boxing, she will essentially be the gold standard in combat sports. There won't be anybody who's going to have a resume or names on her resume that are just going to be able to compete with it at all. So for these girls, this is probably the most important fight in women's mixed martial arts history as far as the stakes and what it means for the winner and for the loser. She loses to the cyborg. Um, Holly becomes thought of as somewhat of a fluke because the only elite person she's ever beaten is Ronda. All the other girls she, she faced who are elite, she's lost to. So this would be yet another loss to an elite fighter. If Cyborg somehow loses the home, to most people, it'll be the first time, you, the first or the second time you face an elite fighter and you got smoked. You beat Gina Carano, but she wasn't really great. So this is really your first elite person you've ever faced and she beats you, it kind of makes everything she's accomplished up until now, it kind of takes a shine off of it a little bit. High stakes for both both parties, um, financially, for their careers right now, and their careers moving forward, and it has a um, big stake in women's MMA and these fighters' careers as far as their legacy. Whoever wins this will be considered the woman, the gold standard for combat sports in mixed martial arts, in combat sports as a whole. So whoever wins this, it, it, that's the one. That's the one who who everybody else will be trying to reach their standards. And whoever loses this is going to have some serious, serious questions to be asked about how good they were, what they really accomplished, and where they really rank in the grand scheme of the um, women's mixed martial arts community. Yes, and definitely some um, strong views there, man. Uh, I'm really interested in seeing this fight because, like you said, it does really, it does really kind of set the tone for both of their legacies long term and the future of I don't want to say the future of women's MMA but it definitely helps um, set the set the tone for what's going on. What are your thoughts about this co-main event? Edson Barbosa and Khabib Nurmagomedov. Let's talk about that. I'm really shocked that Khabib is getting this fight because I mean like he didn't make weight last time. It it's a great fight, cause, and you, you need, it's a fight that needs to happen, especially now that Ferguson's out with an elbow injury, Connor's not there. This, this fight is basically going to determine the direction of the uh, lightweight division, in, in my opinion, more so than Gaethje or, um, versus Alvarez because of McGregor um, and his age. A lot of people, him winning didn't give the division a shot in the arm and open up all these opportunities. Whether Khabib wins or Edson wins, It'd be a new challenger. It'd be a guy who hadn't previously been considered the best guy in division, and it opens up all sorts of possibilities for division. Um, 
to go with, in my opinion, right now, just, just based off the fact that Khabib's defense on the feet and his offense on the feet is so mediocre, in my opinion. But once again, uh, from what I understand of people I know who, who train with Khabib, he gets his hand on you. He throws middleweights around. He's manhandled light heavyweight. So it seems to be that if he, if he gets his hands on you, the fight's essentially over. And I can't imagine any scenario where he does not get his hands on Edson Barbosa. But once again, he's had trouble making weight before. He actually has pulled out of fights many times before. He's He had to pull out of his last fight. So really the biggest issue is, does he make it to the octagon? And in making it to the octagon, is he really prepared and ready to fight? Or is this just one of those weight-making camps where you're not even working on skills and strategies. You're just trying to make sure you make it to the cage. Uh, in which case, you know, if he loses and loses in devastating fashion, he's put himself so far behind the eight ball, I don't know that his career ever recovers. Edson Barbosa's actually had some fairly high-profile losses. He's always found a way to work himself back into the category of being an elite fighter. He's always been able to work his way back into it. So, on that instance, it doesn't, the stakes aren't as high because this has happened to him multiple times and every time he's found his way back. So, real pressure is on to be Nemer Nemerga on I can't pause today. Because if he can't make weight, that's a big problem. And if all he's doing is fighting <coughs> in camp is getting ready to make weight, that's an even bigger problem because Edson Barboza is not the kind of guy uh, you, you have a weight cutting camp for. He's the guy you have to be on your P's and Q's. So I think all the pressure and all the, the possible back backlash is primed to go against uh, Khabib. And he really needs to he really needs to win this fight. He really needs to make it to the fight on weight. And he needs to really he actually needs to win this fight. He loses this fight, he's right back to the back of the line. Right now he's been undefeated and that's allowed his name to stay in talks for titles and among the elite. But uh, one loss and all that talk's gone. And he's right at the back of the line with everybody else. Yeah, right at the back of the line. You're totally right there. Um, this fight really interests me. I, you know, I kind of hadn't really been thinking about the weight lift, uh, weight lifting, weight cutting issues until you just mentioned them there. And I will say this: I'm gonna go ahead and go on the record with this right here. If Khabib Nurmagomedov does not make weight this time, he should be cut. I'm gonna go ahead and and, and draw the line, especially if it's like the day of. Again, if he gets there and he can't make weight the day of or something like that, the organization should should, should just cut him. Like, draw a line in the sand because this this would be what the third time that's happened, third or fourth. I can't even yeah. argue with you. And you know, remember when people said Connor was avoiding him? Connor said before he goes, he's a pull-up merchant. He never makes it to fights. And you're telling me to sign on to fight this guy. He never makes it to important fights. And then he gets an interim title fight in the most anticipated fight of 2017. We had Stephen Wright. He was nerding out over it. And then he doesn't make weight. So this, this isn't a brand new thing. This isn't a once thing. He's either injured or missing weight. I mean, there's been whole years where he's been inactive because of weight issues or health issues. He's not the most dependable fighter. But he makes demands and he makes claims like he is. And to be honest, he's only beat, he's beaten some elite guys, but he's beaten them so long ago that nobody really remembers it. No one does. And, you know, I, I couldn't, I, and I wouldn't be wanting, willing to bet on him to make weight right now at this point in time. Um, I guarantee in Vegas there's, there's a bet saying they're, they're taking bets on whether he makes it to the cage on weight or not, or he even makes it to the cage. Probably bet on whether he makes weight. It's probably bet on whether he makes it to the cage. I guarantee you in Vegas they got that bet going. Uh, yeah, I wouldn't be surprised at all. 
I would not be surprised at all. We haven't really, and luckily, you know, we've seen him out and about with like media days and stuff like that. So he hasn't looked like he's gonna die. Right, and I, and I say that, but we, thankfully we saw him we, before though. We saw him before he switched by Ferguson. <laughs> we saw him too. Yeah, true. Very true. Very true. So I don't want to dive too too deep into this card because we're going to cover it probably after the fact. But um, this is a very uh, interesting card. I definitely looking forward to it, having it close out my MMA uh, 2017. But and um, just the overall, what are your thoughts about this card from top to, top to bottom? I'm a really they, the UFC swinging hard for this one because remember they weren't going to have Cyborg at home because there was a money issue, and then all of a sudden there wasn't a money issue anymore and the fight got made, which means Cyborg and Holly Holm are getting paid exactly what they have. Because home could have had this fight anytime she wanted. She wasn't taking the fight unless she got a certain check, a certain amount of zeros on her check. And Cyborg was not taking any short money to fight home either. So that means both girls got paid, and that means the UFC is totally selling out and hopes that this card can close out the year very well. And the card's pretty stacked, to be quite honest, and I think they're just trying to see if they can turn turn a little bit more of a profit. So they're going all out for the card. There's a lot of top matchups. I th think it's a strong card from top to bottom if nobody else, if nobody falls out. But it's clear they're, they're going, they're swinging for the fences in their last, you know, the last three or four cards they had before the year's over. They were going for, for pay-per-view buys, for highlight reel moments, and for uh, fights that, that appeal to people outside of the mixed martial arts lexicon. I think that a lot of what you said is true, and a lot of it plays into the fact that I, I believe that they were kind of trying to pencil Conor McGregor in for this fight, and then that, that changed once all that other tomfoolery came to a head, um, and that this... I'm surprised they don't have two title fights on this card, first and foremost, and I, I don't think that this was the original main event planned about. Uh, it, it's a good fight, and I look forward to seeing it. But I still don't think that this was the first fight that they had planned from a main event standpoint. And I'm not concerned. Maybe I'm a little concerned of what the pay-per-view buy rates will be. Uh, but this is a good card from, from top to bottom. Yeah, I, I think you're right. I think they wanted something else. But to be honest, who who has who 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 is a champion who could actually, like, Add on and sell right now. Conor McGregor is the only guy who's got any real cachet. Stipe, he's not a seller. Um, who else do they have? Tony Ferguson, I guess, would be kind of champ. Robert Whitaker. I mean, even if you had these guys available, putting them on this card doesn't. It doesn't. It doesn't move any units. What they needed was are guaranteed for a certain level of entertainment and are guaranteed to bring in the hardcores and possibly bring in the casuals. I, I strictly believe that home versus home versus um, Cyborg is strictly to bring in casual people. I mean, Holm's a great fighter. She's had great ability, but the fact of the matter is she's only, she's won in her last four fights. She's won in four in her, no, she's won in three in her last fight. And she's lost to, she's lost to two Bantamweights, and then she lost to a girl who's gonna be fighting at um, Flyweight in a couple of months. And then she lost her featherweight she lost her featherweight title opportunity to another bantamweight. So, th I mean, as far as win streaks and her activity, she hasn't been spectacular. Cyborg's been what Cyborg's always been in the past, in the years of her career. But this, this fight in and of itself, based on records and current events, 
isn't appealing. What makes it appealing is all the things that Holly has accomplished in beating Ronda Rousey, in being an 18-time world champion, in at least putting on these excited fights, and, and that, that's that's what's going to sell this fight. Because you had you've had this woman who's considered the female Mike Tyson, the girl that you know now they're pushing that Ronda Rousey was ducking, basically the only girl who's ever stopped Ronda Rousey. But that, that's a heavy selling point for this fight, and I, I, think I can't will be, sell the match that though. Battle. What? I, it's been what I've heard. That's what when people talk about the fight. That's what I've been heard, hearing. This person stopped Ronda Rousey. Can she do it again? Can she put catch lightning in the bottle again and beat Chris Cyborg? I mean that that's the only thing that's pushing this card. There's no other champion who has a storyline that helps sell a pay per view. Rose Namajunas, love her. She's not making a making or breaking a pay per view. T.J. Dillashaw, he's not making or breaking a pay per view. Neither is D.J. Neither is Robert Whitaker. Neither is um, Tyron Woodley. This is as far as any fight with any crossover appeal. This is the best fight they could put on there outside of a Conor McGregor fight. And they must believe it, because, like I said, Home wanted a certain kind of money to fight Cyborg. She could have a Cyborg fight anytime she wanted. Cyborg's been begging for this fight for years, but she wasn't going to take short money. And all of a sudden, you haven't heard a peep from either one of them about money, about pay-per-view points, or anything. All of a sudden, everybody's real happy. All of a sudden, everybody's really okay. All of a sudden, everybody's signing on the dotted line. When it, This fight literally took years to make. So the only thing that makes people change their mind that quickly is money. Which means they both got paid because the UFC figured we need the biggest, most competitive and exciting event and, and fight we can make. And this is really it, if you think about it. Okay, okay. Um, I'm definitely interested in seeing what the final numbers are when we get into next year. I think that's going to be a very telling point. And so with that in mind, talking about next year, next week we are coming back for episode 70. Or what, what are we on? 69? It'll be episode 69, another great number. As we will be back with myself, Schwan, we will have Michael Ford on the show, um, Adam Martin, and our boy Roy Billington, who will be talking to us from the great uh, country of Ireland. I believe that's where he is. But wow. we're back for another edition of the show in our year end edition. Yes, it'll be an early year end edition because we will have UFC 219 coming up the same day. But, you know, fuck it. We do what we want around here. And we're going to be um, talking about MMA once again. And talking about how the year closed out, what we saw this year, the good, the bad, the ugly. And just going from there, man, we got quite a bit to talk about because um, it's going to be a crazy ass, uh, excuse my excuse my language, it's, it's going to be a crazy show. And the one last year was um, definitely awesome. Yeah, it, when you have a year when the biggest story about an MMA f- fighter involves him getting into a boxing ring with a retired boxer, you know there's going to be some good, bad, and ugly in, a, in any review for the season, for the year, for mixed martial arts. Cool, cool. So, um, last year was a, last year was great. I look forward to it again next week. Last year was a, it was a great show, and I'm definitely looking forward to this one as as well. So, with that in mind, man, let let everyone know what you're working on for the for this week. Um, actually. Um, I, I did two, a two, I did two articles for Severe MMA. Um, it's going to be over the cyborg home fight, kind of breaking down the ins and out of that matchup for, from each perspective. And then for MMA ratings, I'm doing an article for um, Carlos Barza versus Cynthia Calvillo, where I'm basically going to tell you what the things that I believe that Carlos Barza 
needs to do and the things she need, needs to avoid doing to pull the upset and beat the currently undefeated and streaking Cynthia Calvia. Okay. All right. So um, I am actually working on some stuff. I haven't written anything for ratings in probably about a week or so, but I will be uh, correcting that probably tomorrow, today and tomorrow. So um, you'll see you see some work from me. What am I writing about? Not exactly sure, but we'll see, and I'll, I'll get some content up. But as always, man, thank you to everyone who takes some time out to not only listen to our podcast, but also click on the links on our shows and, and check out our, our, our content on the site. So I appreciate everyone who does that and look forward to having you back next week for our year-end show. Um, Shawan, why don't you let everybody know where they can find us? Uh, yes, you can find us on iTunes, on SoundCloud, and YouTube. MMA ratings usually enter in. And if you can't find it yourself, you can always put in MMA ratings. Shawan and Rafael, Shawan Humes and Rafael Garcia, and it'll pull up every possible avenue you can have to listen to us because we know that you want to listen and for the ladies out there i know you want to listen to us <laughs> definitely definitely that so that's it man and i will see you next week man i appreciate your time yeah thank you very much have a good one all right bye